You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week 7, covering Matthew 17, verse 14 through chapter 20. I'm glad you're having a good time. (laughs) But we're going to start. And we're getting through it, aren't we? So you've probably... Most of you have gone through some transition that separated you from family and friends. Moving house, getting married, going to college, seeing your children marry, go off to school. And as, as our time draws near, we focus on what we need to do and say to bring good closure, right? We just sent our daughter and her family back to the other side of the world for three and a half years. That's shorter than their last two terms, but it it seems long. And in the months before, we thought about what we wanted to do with them before they left, the things we needed to say, all those last few things. So Jesus and his disciples are moving toward major transition and separation, but only Jesus knows that it's coming. So forget that you know the end of the story and put yourself in the disciples' place. What are they thinking? Jesus is young, he's just begun his ministry. Surely this Messiah King has years of royal reign ahead of him. And we're gonna be in the inner circle because he picked us first. What, the authorities are about to kill Jesus? You know, that doesn't land. The ending doesn't fit the story at all. So Jesus is preparing them for what's ahead. Once in last week's lesson, twice this week, Jesus clearly tells them that he'll be handed over to the authorities and killed and raised again to life. The most explicit is, verse, is chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is equipping his people for their future as a kingdom community, and that's the church. But the disciples still need a lot of coaching. Our lesson begins with Jesus casting out a demon that the disciples can't budge. Jesus says that if they used even a mustard seed worth of faith, it would work. We're not sure what their problem was. Maybe they were trusting in their own abilities instead of looking to God in faith. Maybe they turned exorcism into a routine or a ritual instead of a faith walk with God. But faith, whether it's large or small, always keeps its eyes fixed on God. That's the power of it. The tax at the end of chapter 17 was not a government tax set by the Romans, but it was a Jewish tax to support the temple. Jesus is God in the flesh, the fulfillment of the temple. He's not obligated to pay that tax, but he doesn't want to needlessly offend the Jews. He's already offended them enough on more important points. Paul the Apostle behaved in a similar way, limiting his freedom for the sake of ministry. You looked up Galatians 5.13. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We struggle with that, don't we? Freedom is not a license to demand my personal rights, but an opportunity to serve others. When we focus on our own rights and privileges rather than service and responsibility to others, we've stopped acting in love. 
in a self-indulgent, individualistic culture like ours, we have to constantly guard ourselves against drifting into those behaviors that we see around us. Chapter 18 contains the fourth discourse in Matthew. Jesus has said that he will build his church and his followers need to learn how to be the church. You'll hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount because this tells how kingdom life is practiced in the church. But what do the disciples want to know? Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus has described his suffering and death and their burning question is how to find personal greatness. It must have been embarrassing to have Jesus call a child over and say, do this, instead of seeking a lofty status, aim to take a lowly position. So the first principle that Jesus teaches them about church life is humility, 18, one to four. That's an attitude of the heart. It doesn't mean that you should never take a position of responsibility and authority. A heart attitude of humility can actually help qualify you to assume authority and an important position. The second principle is to welcome and respect others, verses five and 10. Jesus goes on using little ones to refer to humble childlike believers. He says to welcome them, that includes hospitality, and to respect them, not to look down on any of them because they're precious to God. Three is don't lead others. That's not my typo. Okay, that is sin. I didn't catch that when, when they typed that in. Okay. Don't lead others into sin. Verses six and seven. Some believers will inevitably stumble and sin, but we shouldn't be the ones causing it. If we lovingly care for those around us and know how serious sin is, we'll pay attention to the effect we're having on others. Four is fight against your own sin, verses eight and nine. Just like the Sermon on the Mount, we need to monitor ourselves closely and deal ruthlessly with anything in our lives that pulls us towards sin. It's all too easy for forgiven sinners to make light of sin, especially those little sins that we're sure don't really matter and they quietly keep growing. Jesus says, take sin seriously, deal with it ruthlessly. And then Jesus asserts that we should have such concern and compassion for those around us that we earnestly seek them if they should go astray. That's number five, verses 12 to 14. We actively seek them out and try to bring about their return, just like a shepherd goes after a lost sheep. Now understand, this is not a Lancaster County setting with neat fields and fences. This is open, unsettled country where shepherds roam the hills with their sheep. You might search long and hard to track down a stray sheep. So how seriously do we seek and restore fellow believers who are wandering away from fellowship and from truth? Number six is to deal redemptively with sin in others, verses 15 to 20. Jesus calls us to love our fellow believers, to deal compassionately and gently with them. But love also requires us to deal with sin and not simply ignore it. So he lays out a series of three steps to handle sin in the church. We're not to start at step three if we haven't gone privately already. And we're not to stop at step one if it's serious and we haven't received resolution. But before you even begin those actions, 
you have to make sure that your heart is in the place outlined in the previous verses. So I wanna back up again to that list. Are you being humble and respectful? Is your deepest attitude love and restoration or is it anger and resentment? We need to pray and seek God's heart for that other person before we can even go near them in a redemptive way. So check yourself before you barge in. You'll need God's help to have a proper attitude. I've learned that from experience. This is experience talking. Looking at this list, you see that Jesus constantly did all these things. Was there ever greater humility than the Son of God becoming flesh? He was so welcoming and respectful of lowly people that the Pharisees criticized him. He went face to face with Satan in fighting sin. And his whole purpose on earth was to seek the lost and to bring redemption. So although you can't manage this in yourself, the indwelling Christ can work this in you as you depend on him. So back to the three steps. First, you go quietly for a private talk. Maybe that's all it takes. If it's important enough and you don't find a resolution, bring in another person or two. That ensures that you have witnesses to the conversation. It might help you to be more balanced and careful in your approach. And if a serious matter truly warrants it, you may end up going to the church leaders if there's no resolution. In our case, that would be the elders and the pastoral staff. What's the bit after that about binding and loosing? Do you remember last week those same terms came up with Jesus building his church? Matthew uses the word church two times in chapters 16 and 18. And both of those times he mentions binding and loosing. Christy said last week that this binding and loosing is using God-given authority to accomplish things God has already decided upon. The church has authority to carry out God's work on earth. That includes a mandate to exercise church discipline when necessary. So verses 19 and 20 reinforce the authority that's given to the gathered church. Number seven is practice forgiveness. Verses 18 to 35. True restoration, okay, I've got that wrong too. That's 21. True restoration requires forgiveness. Any ongoing interaction between two humans requires forgiveness, whether it's marriage, parenting, church life, right? We all sin, sin takes a toll on relationships. The common consensus of rabbis in Jesus' day was that a person should be willing to forgive a brother three times, but the fourth time he's not obligated to forgive. So against that backdrop, Peter is being really magnanimous. Wow, if personal relationships in the church are so important, I should be willing to forgive up to seven times, more than twice what the rabbis say, and that's a perfect number, right? No, Peter, 77 times. The point, of course, is not that you can stop at number 78, but that you simply keep forgiving. I heard a snippet of a radio program last week that said, if you're counting, you're not forgiving. So then Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness and how we treat others. The debt that the first servant owes is millions, perhaps even a billion dollars today. In truth, the exact amount doesn't really matter because it's a staggering debt, humanly impossible ever to pay back. 
The servant begs for more time, even though he could never pay it back, all he can do is postpone the judgment. Notice that the king doesn't simply reduce the debt to an amount the man can pay. That would be fair, the servant should at least give up everything he owns, right? No, the king simply cancels the debt entirely, it's wiped away. So when a fellow servant owes the first servant money, what happens? The second sum is large, about three months wages, but it's possibly repayable in time. The fellow servant is shown no mercy when he asks for more time. He's thrown into jail. He can't earn money in jail, so it's a permanent dead end. The other servants watching are indignant. How can someone who's just received incredible mercy turn around and be so heartless toward a man with a much smaller debt? So the servants go to the king and tell him the whole story. The verb used here means to explain in detail. They want the king to understand every bit of how horribly the servant is behaving. The king is furious. He calls the first servant back again, not just to be sent to jail, but to be tortured there until he pays back everything. And of course, he can never pay it back. So... We all know in our heads that the parable is about how much God has forgiven us and how small in comparison are the things we need to forgive other people for. But do we feel it? When I have trouble forgiving, I don't feel wicked. I feel justified, right? Don't you? (laughs) But if this parable is how Jesus views that behavior, I need to change. Nothing anyone can do to me compares with the magnitude of my sin against a holy, sovereign God. But the things people do to me seem so much bigger. So how can I experience so much of God's forgiveness that I turn around and freely forgive others? If it's hard to forgive, I'm not truly appreciating what God has done for me. I don't have a great answer, but I tell you some things I've thought about. Maybe I need to think more deeply about God's incredible work on the cross. We tend to emphasize God's love and tenderness toward us, but we do that at the expense of seeing his majesty, his sinless perfection, his glory. The thought that sinful humans could be reconciled to a sinless, perfect, glorious God That should be mind-boggling and humbling to us and never taken for granted, but we do. We were not forgiven because our sins were so small or so easy to excuse, but because the payment for them was incredibly, infinitely large. The unthinkable, atoning death of the Son of God on the cross. His death on the cross was the greatest injustice in history. No injustice ever done to me even remotely compares. Children often say, that's not fair. Do your kids do that? That's not fair. But the biggest not fair in history is that Jesus died for me. These weeks leading up to Easter are a good time to meditate on what God has done for us. We need to ask God not just to fill our minds with the knowledge of it, but to permeate our hearts with the gratitude and humility and wonder that we should have in light of such a sacrifice. I love this hymn by Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? 
for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Wish I had time to read you all the verses. Go home and look at it. So this forgiveness parable ends the fourth discourse. Jesus leaves Galilee and goes back to Judea where the Pharisees are waiting to spring another trap on him. The current religious leaders were deeply divided over whether divorce was justified for trivial issues like burning supper or whether it was only justified by serious offenses like faithfulness. Yeah, that's the thing they mention most. You know, she burns my supper. No matter what Jesus says, so be careful, ladies. No matter what Jesus says, he'll upset someone. You're safe because his answer doesn't allow that. So instead of answering their question directly, he describes God's design for marriage in 19.4-6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made the male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage as designed by God is a permanent union between a man and a woman. The breakup of a marriage is never a good thing in itself, even if God allows for it in some cases because of our sinfulness. So the disciples are taken aback. If it's that serious, maybe we better not get married at all. They're beginning to realize what lifestyle the holiness of God demands. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus kept pulling his hearers back to the heart of the law? He's doing that here. We like to define what's acceptable behavior, draw a line between what's acceptable and what's sinful, and then get as close to the line as we can, right? Not how close can I get to God's heart, but how far can I go? So the Pharisees ask, when can I divorce my wife? We want to be just good enough to stay on the right side of the line. Meanwhile, God is saying, be holy as I am holy. The holiness that God desires from us is humanly impossible. So like the disciples, we should feel totally inadequate. If we think we can measure up to God's standards in our own strength, we become self-righteous fools, just like the Pharisees. Only by Jesus dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit can we live the way God desires and demands. The disciples see the problem, but they don't yet know the solution that God will provide. So back to the text. What's the stuff about eunuchs? What is a eunuch anyway? In the narrow technical sense, a eunuch is a man who's been castrated. In biblical times, that was often done to slaves so that they would be safe around women. The term could also be used more loosely for someone sworn to celibacy or even for someone holding a position that was usually given to eunuchs. So Jesus is simply saying here, some men are born with physical sexual defects, some are castrated later, some choose celibacy for the sake of ministry. Then in 1916, a young man comes to Jesus. He's been following the God rules, doing lots of good things, but he feels like something's lacking. So he asks Jesus what it is. After talking a bit about keeping the commandments, Jesus goes straight to the man's heart problem. He tells the man to sell his possessions, give the money to the poor, and look forward to receiving treasure in heaven. But the man goes away sad. 
Do you realize that this man had a chance to live out the parable in Matthew 13? There, a man finds treasure in the field, goes away, and joyfully sells everything he has to get the treasure. Here, Jesus tells the rich man where the treasure is and how to get it, and he goes away sad to hear that it will cost all his possessions. He doesn't seem to realize what real treasure is. Jesus says then that it's easier to go through the eye of a needle, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Maybe you've heard a sermon mentioning a gate in Jerusalem that's supposedly called the eye of the needle that's hard for a camel. Well, there never was a gate. There's no historical evidence. It's a nice story. Um, the point is that entrance to the kingdom is impossible for the rich. And again, the disciples are taken aback by Jesus' words. And that's the right response. We need to quit glibly reading right past or watering down these familiar statements that we've heard and, and think what Jesus is saying. Jesus says it's humanly impossible, but with God, it's possible. Again, the answer is not human effort, but total dependence on God. So Peter pipes up, Lord, we've left everything for you, so what kind of reward do we get? They're probably all thinking it, but only Peter is audacious enough to ask. So Jesus says that the apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's quite a privilege. But he also promises that everyone who has left houses or family or fields for his sake will receive 100 times as much in reward. So if that's the equation, sacrifice now leads to 100 times the treasure why is it so hard? Anyone would jump at an investment guaranteed to yield almost 10,000% return, right? <laughs> Why do these temporary things seem so much better than the incredible reward that could await us? How can we tell if we're like the rich young man looking good on the outside but inwardly chained to our possessions? If you were here in church Sunday, I hope Tony convinced you that you're rich in the world's eyes. If you missed it, listen to the sermon online. The real problem, though, is not the things we own, but the stranglehold they have on us. We talk about our consumer culture. We rarely come to grips with how deeply it affects us and how tied we are to our stuff. Working in Thailand, we traveled a lot in ministry. Life was uncertain. You couldn't be sure of coming back to your home in the same shape you left it. There were fires from cooking over open coals in crowded neighborhoods. Low-lying areas were subject to flood in the rainy season. In one house before we left town, we pulled all the bottom drawers out of the dressers and set them on top, just to give us a few more inches of clearance over the water. And thieves always targeted foreigners. I had to learn to deal with the uncertainty by standing at the front door before we left, looking back over everything we had, and telling the Lord that it all belonged to him. And if it wasn't here when I got back, I promised not to complain. And you know, that really did set me free. But I don't seem to do that now. I think I'd be a lot more likely to complain now if something happened. That prevailing culture gradually sucks us in, doesn't it? 
We were home on furlough when we realized that we couldn't go back to Thailand right away, although we fully expected to make it back later. And we came off of mission support. Money was really tight, but that fall, church friends were so generous with hand-me-down clothes that I didn't have to buy our kids anything for school. One day I was driving the car, kids in the back seat, and a commercial came on for back-to-school shopping at Park City Mall. And I felt bad that my kids didn't have a chance to pick out anything new. So I said to the back seat, so what if we go to the mall and do some shopping? And 10-year-old Becky said, why, Mom, what do we need? And I said, well, you don't really need anything, but I thought we could shop for fun. And she said, if we don't need anything, I wouldn't know what to buy. This child did not grow up in America, right? <laughs> I was feeling desperate. And I said, well, don't you think if we went there and I walked you around, you might find something you like? I actually said that. And Becky said, why would we do that, Mom? And I woke up. A total stranger on the radio guilted me into spending money that we couldn't really spare for something I didn't even need. Talk about manipulation. How do we unchain our hearts from our culture and our possessions? First and foremost, immerse yourself in the culture of scripture. Fill your heart and your mind with the things that Jesus says and take them seriously. Don't just walk past them thinking they're exaggerated or impossible in our day. Second, practice generosity. The Apostle Paul quotes Jesus as saying that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Perhaps God has given us all this wealth so that we can have the blessing of being generous. Third, get some cross-cultural experience, whether refugees or homeless ministry nearby, or better yet, travel to the third world. Take the opportunity to see yourself the way the rest of the world sees you. Realize how rich we are. But above all, ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. It's hard to honestly see for ourselves just where we stand in this until something happens. In chapter 20, Jesus tells another parable about a landowner who hired workers for his vineyard. When it came time to pay them, he paid those who worked only one hour the same as those who worked all day. The day-long workers felt cheated, even though they got their full wage. And we'd feel that way too, wouldn't we? What's the problem? They compared themselves to the other workers and thought they deserved more. How many problems in our own lives come from comparison, from looking around and thinking that other people have it easier, or that we deserve more than they do, that God isn't fair? We cannot fathom God's infinite grace and mercy. We can't fully understand how and why he deals with us or others. But we can know that like the vineyard owner, God never shortchanges anyone. He's both generous and merciful. Our human comparisons and expectations only create problems. We already looked at verses 18 and 19, but look at them again in light of what follows. Jesus says he'll be condemned, mocked, flogged, crucified. And what are his followers thinking? They still want to be the greatest. This time it's James and John. Their mother does the asking, but they're standing right there waiting to hear the answer. Jesus asks if they can drink the cup that he's going to drink. 
In scripture, that metaphor, drinking a cup, usually stands for punishment or judgment. Jesus used that in Gethsemane, talking about his crucifixion. Here he tells James and John they have no idea what they're asking, but that they will indeed share his cup of suffering. Jesus goes on to give one more lesson on servanthood and humility. In order to be great, you must be a servant. God's upside down kingdom goes against all our human sensibilities and abilities. It's only lived out through Christ in us. I've said that a lot of times this morning, so I wanna stop now and pray for that. Lord, we need your help. I pray two things for us. First, that we would recognize our human inability Protect us from trusting in ourselves and becoming those self-righteous fools that we see in scripture, but we're sure we would never be. I pray that you'll show us who we are. And then I pray that you will show us how Christ in us can live through us. Teach us to depend on you, to lean on you, to know that your spirit poured into our lives can pour out that kingdom life as we trust in you and look to you. And I pray that you would keep reminding us again and again until we practice it almost without thinking. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.